This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. COVID making an unfortunate comeback thanks largely to the Delta variant. We'll speak to Dr. Anthony Fauci about what we can expect over the next few months. Pandemic might be affecting the intelligence of babies born recently. And how concerned should parents be with kids going back to schools all across the country? We start with a man who needs no introduction, really, at this point. Dr. Fauci, though, is director of the NIH, also chief medical advisor to President Biden. So the Delta variant, breakthrough cases, lots to talk about. The FDA approving the extra dose for a limited number of Americans with compromised immune systems. Let's start there. Uh, Who is it exactly who should expect to get a booster shot? People with those fragile immune systems, and they would know who they are. Yeah, I mean, certainly it would be a situation where you're not going to make the diagnosis yourself because the people that we're talking about are those who have severe compromise of the immune system. So let me just give you examples. Those who have organ transplantation and are on immunosuppressive drugs to prevent the rejection of the transplant. Those who are on chemotherapy for cancer, people with HIV disease with advanced immunosuppression people who are on immunosuppressive regimens, for example, with autoimmune diseases when they're on high dose steroids or a variety of other um, medications that severely compromise the immune system. You're really talking about, relatively speaking, in the adult population, less than 3% of the population. So you wanna make sure that people don't anticipate or feel that because they may have some minor modification of immunity that they fall into that category. We're talking about people with severe immune compromise. So that brings us then eventually to maybe the rest of us, because we get questions all the time and there's a bunch of, you know, 60 plusers, 70 plusers out there going, hey, I'm ready. Give me a third. Um, Are we assuming at this point that eventually a lot of us are going to have to get a booster? We just don't know when? You know, the, the, the situation is as follows. It, it's an assumption, but not an unreasonable assumption that in the future, we'll have to get an additional shot to maintain the durability of the immune response. Namely, even people who've gotten good immune responses to begin with, you're going to assume it's not going to last at the highly protective level indefinitely. The way to find that out is that we are following, we being the the government, particularly the CDC and the pharmaceutical companies, are following cohorts of individuals who have been fully vaccinated. And the CDC is doing that literally on a daily and weekly basis to determine if and when individuals get below a certain level of protection where it would be very prudent to give them an additional dose. We are not there yet for the rest of the population. You can assume that at some time we'll get there, but we're not there yet. The one thing we are doing so that we don't get caught short, we are preparing and anticipating the eventuality of that happening. So that if in fact the data might appear that there is a sharp drop in the protection, the level of protection, from the vaccines that would be very ready 
to implement a booster program uh, expeditiously. So not yet, but we certainly are preparing for that. There are a fair amount of people who have gone and, and got one already, and sometimes it's another Pfizer or a Moderna, and there's a lot of people who got the J&J, and they feel the need to go and get one of the mRNA vaccines because they think that can help them. Is it bad to jump the gun, or people are going to do what they're going to do, and we roll yeah. with it? I think it's just what you said. You know, people are going to do what they're going to do, but we would much prefer that decisions are made based on good scientific and clinical evidence and not just because people feel a bit insecure, or a little bit worried, because when you do that, there are issues of safety that you don't collect the data in an orderly fashion to know if it's actually safe. You know, there's no reason to believe that it's not going to be safe, but you want to do things in a way where you can collect data and make broad and meaningful recommendations and guidelines for people so that everybody can make a decision based on solid science. And that's the reason why we certainly don't recommend people just going and getting a boost because they feel like they want to get a boost. If we do need shot number three, does that automatically mean someday a shot number four and shot number five? Does it become routine? Not necessarily. First of all, we don't know. We are obviously, as we well know, dealing with an evolving situation and a moving target. I mean, the Delta variant is quite different than the Alpha variant. It has a much, much greater capability of transmitting from person to person. We know that. So you can't predict definitively what the future holds. But I do not believe that if we do it right, I think we might get to the point where the correct regimen of how many doses you need and under what intervals could get us to a situation where we could get durable immunity and would not necessarily at all. And again, we don't know, but it very well may be that we will not need the kind of yearly boost that we get with influenza. We should not assume that that is going to be the case. And doctor, on the vaccinations, uh, it depends also what we're trying to do with them, right? What we're trying to accomplish. Obviously, preventing severe illness and death, that's that's the main goal. But also we're trying to reduce transmission, maybe bring case rates down to end the pandemic. Those could all be different things. Well, you're absolutely right. And I think you hit the nail on the head with that. We're asking the vaccines to prevent us from getting sick, particularly from having and requiring hospitalization And as we've seen so many times with over 615,000 people death in this country. So the vaccines continue to do that really quite well. But the point you make is a good one because this is such a highly transmissible virus. If the goal is to really get down very, very, very low transmissibility, that really is going to require getting the overwhelming majority of the population uh, vaccinated because we know even the best of vaccines are not 100% protective. If you get vaccinated, you're protected like the classic data from the original studies. And let's just take as an example, the mRNA vaccines that there was 94 to 95% protection against clinically recognizable disease. Protection against just getting infected, even though it's asymptomatic or only slightly symptomatic, is likely considerably less than that. So if your goal is to prevent pure transmission, that's a very, very high bar 
In order to do that, you're going to have to make sure you don't have very many vulnerable people around in the population, which means you want to get the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated. And then together with people who may have been infected and have a good um, protection against subsequent infection, and you could really nail that down by even vaccinating those people, then you could get to the point where you have a blanket of protection, not only against severe disease, but also against transmission. So the easier a virus transmits from person to person, the more people you need to get vaccinated to truly get what we refer to as herd immunity. The bottom line of all this discussion really underscores the reason why we say it's so important for as many people as possible to get vaccinated as quickly as possible. We know where we are with the rates, so, and we also know we're getting the kids back in schools, which is a good thing. We don't want them to be home. That was rough enough. Um, but talk to mom and dad out there who know that they're going to send their child back and they've got concerns because maybe they're in the age group where you can't give them a shot yet. Well, exactly. That's the group that's obviously vulnerable. But we do know from experience over the last 18 months of the deleterious consequences of keeping children out of the physical presence of school. You know, everything from, you know, the difficulties with virtual type learning, the mental health stress, the social developmental issues that arise when you keep kids out of school. So you balance that with something that obvious is of great importance is the safety of the children. So there are a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost, is you surround the children in the school environment with people who, if they're eligible to get vaccinated, they should get vaccinated. And you're talking about teachers, you're talking about personnel in the school, and you're talking about children who are eligible to be vaccinated. Because people, for example, from 12 to 17, 18, they are eligible, and yet the rate of vaccination in that group is not really where we want it to be. It, relatively speaking, is still low. So the tenet I use is that you want to surround the children with vaccinated people who are eligible to be vaccinated. And since in the school there are children who can't get vaccinated yet because we're still waiting for the trials to show that it's safe and induces the proper response as well as the regulatory approval, that's the reason for the mask wearing by everybody in the school because you want to provide a safe environment to the children at the same time as keeping them physically present in the school and i believe we can do that if we follow the cdc guidelines on the one hand and on the other hand to really make a big push to get everybody who can be vaccinated vaccinated that will cut down the level of community spread and when you cut down the level of community spread, just de facto, you're going to be cutting down the likelihood that a child is going to get infected. So this is L.A. It's Hollywood. Let's, let's do a rewrite. Uh, the script is king for a day. Looking back and let's we can go early on 2020. What are things that you would have done or would have done differently? Well, knowing what we know now, uh, you know, it's a question that really is unanswerable, because if we knew then what we know now, the things we would have done would have been unacceptable to the American population. 
So you want to do the movie script. So, okay, it's January, February. We know now that this virus, A, transmits very efficiently. That two, and importantly, anywhere from 50 to 60% of the transmissions are by people who don't have any symptoms and don't even know that in fact they are infected or are not yet symptomatic. We know now that wearing masks clearly prevent the spread. But if you go back to January, February, we were not sure of a lot of things. We weren't sure if it spread efficiently from person to person. We had no real idea that it could actually be spread by, by a large proportion of the population that were asymptomatic. We didn't know that masks outside of the hospital setting actually worked. So if you take us back then and say, okay, it's the end of January uh, 2020, you get up there and you say, folks, I want everybody to lock down and I want everybody to wear a mask. You would have almost been laughed out of the country if you said that because we didn't know at the time the capability of the virus. Now that we know it, if we had it to do it all over again, we would have been much, much more aggressive back then in January and February of 2020. We always ask doctors, how frustrated are you by you know this surge because it's so preventable? So I guess, but maybe forget frustration. Do you get angry? Are you disappointed? How how do you get your patience and keep it through all of this, knowing that people now in hospitals, you don't have to be there? Yeah. Well, I try to keep emotion out of it. <laughs> You're trying to psychologically, psychiatrically examine me on the, <laughs> on the radio. And of course, I get frustrated. But you Lay know, down on the couch. We'll get the notepad out, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. But, you know, obviously it is... It is very frustrating. The frustrating part about it is that all of these things that are going on right now were were entirely predictable and are entirely preventable. You know, that's what you really got to appreciate. And and unfortunately, we're in the middle of a historic public health and global health crisis, the likes of which this planet has not seen in over a hundred years. And unfortunately, with all the other unfortunate things about it, it happens to have occurred in the midst of extreme political and societal divisiveness. And if there's anything that gets in the way of what should be a unified synergistic response to a common enemy, which is the virus, we have a variety of things going on that have no place in the good response, the adequate response, the optimal response, to a pandemic. And that's all the nonsense that's going on about mandating people that you can't mandate. I mean, you're having local people who really want to really get control and you have some leaders in certain states that are saying, no, you can't do that because of reasons that are inexplicable. That's not the way to really fight an outbreak. You still got hope? Hope, I always have hope. I mean, I'm. I, uh, my whole life has been as a physician and a scientist and a public health person, and I always count on that ultimately people will see and do the right thing, uh, even though it might be inconvenient to them in an ideological standpoint 
we got to put that aside. I mean, I have no problem with people having ideological differences. That's fine. I'm not a political person. I don't get involved in that. But when those kinds of ideological fixations that people have get in the way of proper implementation of public health, I do have some faith that the better angels and people will come out, even though it doesn't seem that way sometimes. Thanks so much, doctor. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be with you. You Take too. Care. Short break, and then new study shows children born during the pandemic struggling in a number of areas. There's a study finds babies born since the pandemic began have significantly reduced verbal and motor skills overall and performance cognitively behind that of children born before the pandemic. Sean Dioni is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Brown University. He authored the study. So is this another example of something caused by the pandemic that we might have to deal with for a while? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I think you hit the hit the nail on the head in the sense that, uh, you know, we've long known, obviously, that uh, uh, isolation and other stressors, um, job loss, etc. during pregnancy can have an impact on both fetal development and then subsequent early infant development. Um, but this is really one of the first, uh, you know, sledgehammer over the head kind of evidence that this is actually impacting our kiddos uh, and our young infants, uh, you know, the last year and a half or so. Uh, to, a, to an extent that I think was both, both surprising to us and our authorship team, but, but I think certainly more broadly by the scientific community. How much of an effect? Is this just a little bit or is it like you look at the numbers and you go, well, this, this is not subtle at all? Yeah, no, it's, like I say, it's not subtle at all. It's definitely a sledgehammer over the, the head in a way. So, um, you know, normally when we talk about cognitive tests and cognitive performance, we try to normalize our tests to about a mean of 100 and, and a standard deviation of 15. So what that means is that, you know, about 60% of the population exists between, say, 85 and, and, and 115. So, you know, when we look back over the last uh, decade, indeed, of, of kiddos that we've been assessing in our lab, uh, we see that that's pretty much the case. We look at the mean, the, those kiddos are kind of rolling around that 97, 98, maybe bumping up to 103. Um, but in the tail end of last year, so from March until December, we saw a drop down to about 86 uh, as a mean. And then early this year, that's dropped down even further into the mid 70s. So really a pretty significant uh, reduction, something that we would normally associate with, with cognitive impairment. It'd be very worrisome that if we saw a kiddo in the, in the, the clinic or in the lab with these sorts of numbers, they're very akin to what we'd see with a, a developmental disorder, for example. So pretty, pretty significant, very striking. Is this a situation where uh, now that we see this happening to these uh, young children, we can maybe have more education for them that will help them in the long term? Or is this something that uh, that person is going to have to struggle with for the re- rest of their lives? That's a great question. And, and to be honest, we don't fully know the answer to that. Certainly, you know, we believe in, and, uh, uh, you know, we always kind of relate back to kids are resilient, children are resilient. Um, and certainly early infancy is an, a time of great resiliency. But we also recognize the importance. You know, we hear a lot about this, this concept of the first thousand days, right up until your second birthday, and how important that time period is for overall development and really setting the foundation uh, for lifelong health. Um, and so anything that happens in that time period can have really long-term consequences. Uh, and so we're seeing now that these kiddos in that first you know, 18 months or so, so within that period are, are really starting to struggle. And so I think you, you sort of mentioned, you know, additional support, additional education, you know, things like Head Start. I think those will be things that we will need uh, as these kiddos 
age up, enter into preschool, enter into to kindergarten and, and full-time schooling, I think we're going to see the, the broad need uh, for you know, those supporting systems. Um, and I think if, if possible, we should be putting them in place now to sort of help out parents uh, you know, connect with their child, really kind of go back to those basics of, you know, reading to kiddos, um, playing with your kiddos, trying to get them outside as much as they, they, they can, uh, because I think it is a lack of, of, of stimulation and interaction that's driving a lot of this, um, but it will, it, it's, it's possible it's going to have pretty long-term um, negative consequences. Sean Dioni is the author of this uh, study looking at the IQs for the babies born during the pandemic, associate professor of pediatrics at Brown University. Kids going back to schools in the middle of the surge. Uh, here in L.A., everyone on campus is going to be required to wear masks, undergo weekly testing for LAUSD, but the rules, they can vary from state to state. Dr. Danelle Fisher, chair of pediatrics at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. She's also the mother of fourth grader. Uh, doctor, your son not eligible yet for the vaccine, right? So how do you feel about sending him back? Yeah, that is my child. My son is nine. He is going into fourth grade. So unfortunately, he's not eligible yet for a COVID vaccine. And I've been talking to a lot of local parents and families that are dealing with this issue. And I mean, it it is making everybody nervous and understandably so. COVID Delta is incredibly contagious. But the good news is that if we continue to follow guidelines set forth by the L.A. County Department of Health, we think our kids are going to be safe going back to the classroom five days a week. We're seeing some horrible news coming out of uh, states like Florida, where the governor is pushing back against schools wanting to uh, use these uh, COVID safety protocols. And we're seeing kids getting sick with this. And, and that is the concern with kids who can't get vaccinated yet. So are, are you convinced, really convinced, that, that we're doing enough here? And do you think that if it so happens that the Delta variant starts getting out of control again, that the uh, LAUSD would be ready to go back to uh, distance learning? Yes, I do. I think that here in Los Angeles, we have been watching the numbers and we have numbers that are safe to send our kids back to school. We are fortunate to have a decent percentage of our population vaccinated. So that is helping keep numbers lower than in other areas of the country. However, we have to be vigilant and we have to continue to monitor our communities and make sure they're safe. And if we have to do a sudden pivot, and if we have to go back to something we don't want to do, which is distance learning, I think LAUSD and other school districts around the area are going to be able to handle it. Unfortunately, history proves that we are able to do it. We hope we don't have to, but we will be ready if we have to. Generally, remind people what we know and and don't know in some cases about kids and infections, kids and long COVID, because there's parents out there that want to know, is this going to be a cold if they get it, which is a bummer, but, you know, you get 50 of those in childhood, or if it's going to be something that, you know, could be really bad for a long time. Yeah, you know, here's the good news about kids and COVID. They don't seem to get severe infections for the most part. We are not seeing kids getting as sick from COVID, even COVID Delta, as we are adults in general. We still do have to be cautious. There are still some rare cases that are serious. But by and large, if your child does contract COVID Delta variant, by and large, they're going to be okay after a couple of days. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of viruses going around, and so we're just encouraging families to be as safe as possible when they're home. We're going to keep the kids as safe as possible when they are on campus. 
And if anybody is sick, please keep them home from school. I think that's one of the most important things that we all can do as a community, not to add to the burden. What do you tell uh, parents uh, who are against vaccinations? And, and if their kids are able to get vaccinated, they push back against that. They don't want to see any vaccine mandate. And some of them might even be a little hostile about uh, mask mandates as well. What, what advice do you give them? How do you convince them? Oh, this is such a tough one. Um, I think that the first thing to do is have a very respectful conversation and really inquire what the concern is, because different people have different concerns. I've had some families where their biggest concern is, are we going to have full approval, not emergency use approval of the vaccine? And in particular, the Pfizer vaccine is the only one that's approved for 12 and above. So the good news is that that Um, approval, that full approval is coming within the next month. Uh, It's probably going to be here by Labor Day. So that's some good news that I think can help um, hopefully convince some people. The other thing is to ask, you know, really, are there concerns for themselves? Are there concerns for their children? And I have good science and good data to back up some of the concerns that I've had parents say to me. People are concerned about whether or not this vaccine is going to disrupt development or puberty, or fertility. And we already have great science showing that none of those things are going to happen. Um, The other big thing is masks. By and large, kids are okay with masks. And I see it over and over again. We even got the little ones doing masks. And so many kids are so ready to go back to school, even if masks are in play. I think it's really important to involve our children in these conversations when we're talking about people who are vaccine or mask hesitant and really just having a thoughtful one-on-one conversation with them. Does that kind of blow your mind sometimes when we see all these protests and these fights and especially in some of the other states about the masking policies in the schools and then because you can get in the comments and read everybody and there's always somebody in there goes um my kid doesn't care like it's gonna be fine. (laughs) You know um I I always say this, you know, in medicine, we have a rule. Always look at the kid, okay? You might see numbers. You might see data. You might see a lab result. But how does that kid look and what does that kid think? And if we work with our kids and we let them know that something as simple as wearing a mask, which is not dangerous, which is something that we have been doing for a year and a half, if we can continue doing that safely and getting our kids back to school, they are going to want to go to school. So kids, if you're out there listening, help convince your parents that it is okay to be doing this. And we're all going to get through this. We're going to get vaccines, hopefully, into everybody as soon as we can. And in the meantime, we're going to mask, we're going to wash our hands, and we're going to be safe. Before we let you go, in terms of the precautions, I mean, what do you think this ends up looking like in practice? Uh, How communicative has the district been? Or, Or since you're in the field, there's a child in class, they get sick, we've got a case. What happens? Does does the class go home? Do the close desks go home for a few days? LAUSD is testing once a week for everybody. Yes, they are. And and there are totally uh, protocols and plans in place. We have been seeing this since last spring. We've been seeing this over the summer with summer camps operating. And now we're going to see it in LAUSD as well. Safety plans are in place so that if one child is sick in one classroom, it's not going to affect the whole school Yes, that class might be shut down. Yes, there might be some deep cleaning, some repeat testing and monitoring for symptoms. Again, by and large, infections are going to be mild if they occur. 
and we're all going to work together. And like I said, we're going to do all those safety measures so we don't have to go through the precautions and the protocols, but they are in place when we need them. Dr. Danelle Fisher, Chair of Pediatrics, Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. Doctor, thanks. The Diamond Princess cruise ship. Remember this? The outbreak on that ship during a cruise last February. Really one of the ways we all started to notice this was going to be a global pandemic. Cruises are going again. They're coming back. People are testing positive. Carnival ship that set sail from Texas this week has 27 confirmed cases. Fortunately, almost everybody on board vaccinated. It appears that most people with COVID asymptomatic at this point, but they're isolated and now all guests are going to have to have a negative test in order to get off the ship when it docks at future ports. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.